Colorado's legislature has made national news this session more than once because of things lawmakers have said on the floor of the House. I'm getting there. Don't worry, Buckwheat. I'm getting there. I'm now, sorry. what I'd like to say, what I'd like to say, that's an endearing term, by the way. That's Representative Richard Holtorf, a Republican, using a name for a Democratic colleague that was immediately met with outrage. We must maintain order in here and not refer to any individuals other than in any inappropriate manner. So please do not do that any further. Mr. Sullivan. Mr. Holt, why are you yelling at me? Why are you yelling at me? Why are you yelling at me? On this week's episode of Purplish, we will take a look at how Colorado lawmakers are handling deep divides over issues about racism, what it actually means to be racist, and how it's all playing out in the way they treat each other on the floor of the chamber. From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. Joining me this week in the studio is my colleague, Andrew Kenny. Hello. Hey. So, Benta, I know you want to talk about a few of these different incidents, but let's start with the one that began the show. Take us through what was happening there in that audio that we played at the start of the episode. Um, you know, it's not normally the reason the state wants to make national news. Why did it become national news? Right. Yes, I think that's true. People didn't want attention on Colorado for this particular reason. So to back up a little bit, uh, we we heard that tape from Representative Richard Holtorf. He's a Republican, and he was addressing Democratic Representative David Ortiz. And for a little context, both of these uh, lawmakers are pretty new to the chamber. Yes, that's right. This is their first legislative session, actually. They're first-year lawmakers. And Holtorf was at the microphone. This is kind of the center of the chamber where lawmakers stand when they're discussing and debating legislation. And Holtorf was offering an amendment to a bill. And he was countering something Ortiz had said earlier, and the, the two of them had a little bit of a back and forth, and here's how Ortiz describes it. He mentioned me by name, except he said the wrong county. He was like, well, you know, my veteran peer from Jefferson County. And so I was like, Arapaho, you're going to say it, get it right. Like, that's how I started. And then he started talking about the Geneva Conventions and about rules of engagement, which in my mind had nothing to do with the amendment whatsoever. And so I was like, to the bill. Okay, so this doesn't sound that uncommon so far. You know, they're kind of arguing a little bit about protocol. Did Holtorf say the right county? Was he staying on topic or not? But then Holtorf said this phrase that went national, right? Yes, and that's when Holtorf said, looking at Ortiz, I'm getting there. Don't worry, Buckwheat. I'm getting there. And so, like we said, this quickly prompted outrage in the chamber and then started spreading on social media, on the news. I saw the video online almost right away. And I have to tell you that, like, I knew immediately that's something you shouldn't be calling your your colleague. It's mm-hmm. obviously denigrating. But uh, I wasn't aware of the exact history of buckwheat as a racial stereotype and as a slur. And so what it actually means, as I quickly learned, is it's popularly a reference to a black character, a little boy on Little Rascals, mm-hmm. a show that dates to the 30s. And obviously it was a very tokenized and racialized character. And so it's become... A slur and a stereotype. Mm-hmm. And I think for some lawmakers, it, you know, we had heard it took them right back to that earlier time in history. And a lot of people clearly knew the meaning. Mm-hmm. Holtorf 
told me he didn't know what it meant. Um, He does now understand that other people, especially black lawmakers and not just black lawmakers, saw it through a much different lens, through a racial lens. People were shocked. People were upset. But Holtorf said he didn't know all that history there. And my narrative is very different than their narrative and their understanding. Um, Remember, we have to uh, understand that there are different meanings for different words for people that come from different places. And what is unfortunate is I don't think we have the patience because of this racially charged environment we're in in this country to listen and get things in context before we jump to conclusions. Maybe we should add a little context here. He was speaking to Representative Ortiz, who is Latino, not black, but it was still the uttering of the phrase that was really the problem. Right. I think that's absolutely correct. And... You know, there have been several incidents which which we'll talk to, but this was very disruptive on the House floor. It was like the equivalent of hearing any other slur for some people. Right. And Democratic Speaker Alec Garnett talked about this, and he said he talked to one member who really felt like these type of comments prevented that person from doing their work at the Capitol hmm. and brought them back to a very, very dark place in American history. And Alec Garnett, who's white, said, even if you didn't know what this term meant— Everyone who is in that chamber needs to be respected. People won their offices Mm. and you need to address people appropriately. And that uh, comes first and foremost with the title that every one of my colleagues has earned, which is representative. Anything that strays from that, especially into the a pejorative racially charged comment is 100 percent inappropriate, has no place in this chamber whatsoever. Yeah. And you can see how even if you remove all that racist history of that particular word, like calling someone Buckwheat at best is like calling them like Spud or Bucky or Kiddo. It's diminutive. It's disrespectful, right? That's exactly right. Um, One thing that that happened after this incident is Representatives Ortiz and Holtorf spent some time alone together. They actually went to a cigar bar. They were in a committee hearing together and then went out afterwards. And Ortiz told me he does see Holtorf as a friend. They're both veterans. They have a bond over that. I mean, bottom line is anybody that served in the military is family to me. And we all have family members that will get up and embarrass us from time to time. And again, this is not trying to excuse any of it. It also comes from a place of the fact that he is a veteran wanting him to be better and wanting to be a part of helping him come to a better place. So that's a little surprising to me to learn the the nuance of their relationship. They have some shared life experience. Mm -hmm. They're kind of finding a way to reconnect. You don't always get that from the viral moment, right? I I think that's exactly right. It it goes beyond that moment that's just captured that people see that's a Mm. few seconds. And I asked Ortiz a little bit about how that conversation went with Holtorf when we didn't have the cameras, you didn't have the microphones. It was just the two of them. I mean, it's, it's so multifaceted when it comes to, I want what's best for him on a personal level. I want him to learn and grow from this so that we don't have to do this. I want that for the institution too, because we're supposed to represent the best in our communities. And it, it really starts with the example that we set. Well, like family, lawmakers are kind of stuck with each other, at least for a couple of years, have to be in the same building. And <laughs> you can true. see why they might try to work it out. That's happening behind the scenes at cigar bars and whatnot. <laughs> what's happening back in the chamber? Well, um, just recently, I actually took a picture of 
Holtorf and Ortiz sitting next to each other on the floor because they were the main sponsors of a bill they were working on together. So they are still working together. Beyond that, Holtorf has publicly apologized to the entire chamber. Mm. He went to the House floor and he started by saying that the institution demands the highest level of decorum and deserves everyone's commitment to do their best. And he said it, it starts with him. It is a blessing to learn about our experiences from different parts of this state. I hope you all understand that I see all of you as my brothers and sisters, all created by God and all equal. I cherish working with you each and every day. And Mr. Speaker, I especially appreciate your leadership. I look forward to working with you in the future under your guidance and leadership. You all have my sincerest apologies. Well, so maybe that brought an end to that particular tiff, which got a lot of attention. But this really wasn't the only time something like this has happened this session. A case where another lawmaker said that the three-fifths compromise wasn't demeaning anybody's humanity. That was the agreement that black people should only count as three-fifths of a person for purposes of congressional representation. Uh, There was a joke about lynching. There was someone else who shouted into the chamber that he's not a white supremacist and he can't change the color of his skin. What have you heard from black lawmakers about the tenor and these comments in the room? Well, I sat down with Democratic Representative Jennifer Bacon, and I really wanted to talk to her because she said she's gone out for lunch or coffee with a number of Republicans after they've said things that she's had concerns about. Before we get into it, why did she say she's doing that? Well, first off, Bacon said she wasn't coming into this legislative session as a first-year lawmaker anticipating having these conversations. Yeah. She's She said she's had them in other jobs, and so she's done this work before, but she wasn't starting the session thinking this would be a huge part of her first yeah, session Yeah, thinking here. that she'd have to be the diversity and equity educator. She wants people to understand her experience of racism, systemic racism, Black people's experience— mm. She feels that other people are doing that work, too. But she says if she doesn't do it, who is going to do it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, she said when she hears colleagues saying there aren't problems, um, it invalidates her own life experience. My blackness does not go away. People are like, put the card away. This is not a card, okay? When I walk into a room, some people see black before they even know what my name is. The reason why we talk about it is because it happened to us, you know? And it happened to a lot of people here. So when they say you're trying to divide, you are denying who I am. That is why it's painful. So it sounds like she's been talking to other lawmakers about the continuing presence and effects of, of what of racism in American life, right? Right. And, you know, some of these incidents that we were mentioning, the three-fifths compromise and, and that type of thing, came up on bills where the legislature was discussing media literacy and civics education mm. and what should be included Uh, in school education around Mm. those issues. You know, Bacon said she feels that there's a lot of misconceptions about what it means to be racist or what racism is. And she said she wants people to understand that you can do harm to someone without explicitly intending to. You know, the country has done a good job to kind of like define a racist as like an act of Klansman that you come in with your hood on or you wake up with malice and intent, you know, like hurtful intention in your heart saying, I'm going to call you the N-word and you don't get to sit here. But that's not what it is. Because I've asked people this. I'm like, if this country made it a point for 200 of its 250 years to have laws that codified what race is, 
but also what people can't do because of their skin color. You know, they codified it because it was supposed to have an impact and it was supposed to shape some sort of outcomes here. Why do we think it didn't work? You know what I'm saying? And so we have to be intentional in undoing that. So what that reminds me of is that this is not just about people saying the wrong things, about racial comments, racist comments. It's also about the fact that lawmakers more and more often are talking about race and racism as they talk about our systems and policies. They're talking about the racial and racist effects of our existing system. I think that's exactly right. Um, When I've talked to some Republicans, they feel like these conversations are maybe being overplayed or used in a context where they don't apply. There was an incident uh, on the floor where a couple lawmakers said systemic racism doesn't exist. And that came out of a discussion on a bill you've covered on a public health care option. Some of the proponents, one of the reasons they were arguing for it is undoing systemic racism. So you're right. It's a topic that comes up in a lot of policy discussions. Let's stop here and actually define systemic racism. As I understand it, it's not the idea that written into our laws are a lot of things that say black people can't do this or Latino people can't do this. It's more the idea that, you know, most notably black people began their history in this country in chains as slaves with nothing. And that centuries later, we still see that the net income and net wealth of black families is dramatically lower than white families. And that we have all these racial effects in terms of how people are treated in the criminal justice system, for example. So while many of our current laws and rules are colorblind, are not explicitly based on race, they continue to have racist effect. It's racist in effect, if not in the way it's actually worded. Right. And I think these issues are coming up a lot more frequently this session than I've heard before. So not that the topic of racism and racial justice has never been discussed in the legislature. It has. But it's much it's featured much more prominently now. And I think that is because of just internationally and nationally, it's been a focal point this last year. And Hmm. black lawmakers I've talked to point out that this history isn't 400 years ago. You know, uh, we have lawmakers in the legislature who've lived through some of that. I, I remember one of the most poignant moments on the House floor was when Janet Buckner talked about her childhood, not learning how to swim and being banned from her local swimming pool for being black. And in fact, the only time she was allowed to swim in that pool was the night before the water was going to be clean. Well, if the growing point among like liberals and progressives is that we need to redesign the system to stop delivering these racially disparate results, you know, I've asked Republicans about like their thoughts on these divides. And, you know, one response I'll hear is that like we need to embrace uh, conservative ideals to make the economy grow faster and lift all boats. Have you heard any other um, response to this idea? I I talked to Republican Representative Mark Baisley Mm -hmm. about this, and he made this point that a lot of lawmakers would probably get along really well if they didn't talk about these issues. You know, when you think of being out in the real world, there may Mm. be people you're close to, but don't talk politics or don't talk about racial justice. I mean, this stuff is going around us, but I don't know how much people are talking to Mm. their friends and family necessarily. But he, he said that Lawmakers obviously don't have that chance. They're there to have these discussions. He feels like sometimes the issue of systemic racism is being used to divide people and used in policy discussions where he doesn't see it being relevant. Most of us white folk are just going, what? why is that applied to me? I don't apply that to me. I don't behave that way. I don't think that way. That's an offense in and of itself. 
I th it really seems to be a very deliberate program towards some goal, and I, I have to assume that it's uh, that division in the community benefits somebody. And so they're trying to keep that alive. So that there's a very fundamental kind of disagreement there on what systemic racism means, where it should be applied, how often it should be brought up. Yeah. And, I, you know, a lot of that goes to like the central divide between liberals and conservatives, which is like if the state of the world is that we keep getting these racial effects from our systems, then for liberals, that is another point that we need to make change. And that's the opposite of what conservative philosophy is, which is like, like the bones of the country are like good and sound. But regardless, that kind of raises this like interesting divide over like whether people with radically different worldviews can still be friends when they hold like such different opinions. Um, can you be friends with someone whose policies you think really hurt and damage you? It mm -hmm. seems like some lawmakers are figuring out a way to do this in the chamber. Yeah, I think it depends. You, Everyone has different personalities, obviously. But I think one thing that's made that a little bit harder this session, and I've heard this from lawmakers across the political spectrum, has been the result of COVID-19. Because there's typically a lot of forums in the evening, mixers, mm. events that they're going to and talking to each other. Mm -hmm. Even on the floor, the chambers, people are a little bit more divided. And so when you go to those events, you get to know a little bit about someone. You know, do they have a dog? Do they have kids? Yeah. And I think when you deeply disagree, but you know a little bit more about someone, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't know Mark Baisley grew up in Puerto Rico. When I talked to Representative Holtorf, I learned that he was born in Spain. I didn't know that, you mm. know, so it's just little things you learn about people. When you do have those deep disagreements, you express that disagreement maybe differently when when you, you see the person more as a person. And I've heard, heard that from both sides. Mm. Like people don't see, see each other as people as much. Yeah. It's like that person you argue with at the microphone versus having those lighter moments. And I, I think that'll start to change as, as COVID lifts. I think a lot of members in both parties do try to have those conversations. I think Bacon's taken it to the next level with how many she's had, but people are trying to have have a good relationship where they can. Well, that's what's fascinating about the legislature. You know, 100 people, right, who uh -huh. are by definition from totally across the spectrum, yep. all having to get along in a building with very poor air conditioning and <laughs> cameras running and microphones running, and then you see what happens. <laughs> and on very little sleep. And if you're anything like me, that tends to make people grumpier and more on edge. And so, you know, this has been about some tough discussions mm -hmm. this episode. I do want to point out that there have been a lot of tough sessions for mm. different reasons. And so even though some of these comments on the microphone in the House are unique and this is really, really difficult, there's been other sessions that have kind of, I think the speaker told this to me, the train's gone off the track. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that, that happens every session. But it's, it's volatile and emotions are high and, there, you know, it is important work yeah. and everyone's in that room together. So it's something's bound to happen. I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon because, you know, I think a part of democratic politics now is saying we live in an equitable society and they want to use government to fix that. And, you know, again, contrary to what Republicans think, how do you see this playing out in the future? Gosh, I wish I knew. But I think that what's really fascinating is these discussions that are happening around the country and maybe more privately or maybe people talk among friends who they agree with. 
I know my family is very politically diverse and mm-hmm. when people are gathered, people keep their thoughts to themselves. I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, you know that doesn't happen at the Capitol. And I think that, you know, basically, as I mentioned, said, hey, we'd probably all <laughs> get along really well if, if we, we didn't, didn't have talk to talk about, about this stuff. stuff. So kind of to end on a hopeful note, um, Representative Bacon said that, you know, she really wants to focus on how we can help other people understand each other's perspectives and experiences. And, you know, she sees the legislature, people representing different geographic parts of the state mm-hmm. from different backgrounds, really as a strength. And, you know, Baisley and, and Republicans see that as a strength, too. And Baisley recently uh, lost his father. His father passed away. And he said so many lawmakers said such warm words, lifted him up, reached out to him. And so at its core, I think there's there's a lot to work with there as they move forward. Yeah. And I, I don't think these conversations are static. So I think both of us are looking forward to seeing kind of where it goes from here. Definitely. So this has been a pretty heavy episode. Um, let's end with something more lighthearted. We always like to highlight something that made us stop and say, wait, 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 wait. What? what? I think you've got one, right? Yes. Um, in my head, I did literally say, wait, what? And in fact, I was at CPR's newsroom and I said, what? <laughs> so loudly that some of my colleagues were like, what's going on? But I was listening to a committee hearing in the Senate. Uh, it was a bill that stemmed from the Boulder mass shooting, and it would let local communities pass stricter firearm laws than the state. And so I'm listening to it, and the the chair of the committee says, okay, next up to testify against this bill is Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. And so that was my wait what moment, because members of Congress, you know, she was in D.C. and she testified remotely. They don't typically testify on state legislative bills. Um, that was my, wait, wait, Bobert, did I hear that right? Why is she testing? Did she show up with her gun rack behind her again? Well, it was remote, so. Oh, it was audio only. <laughs> yeah, I was listening to the audio. She is a Colorado citizen. Any member of Congress can testify. Doesn't happen a lot, though. I don't remember it happening before, but if I say it's never happened before, I'm, I'm sure it has happened. But I don't think I've listened to a committee when it's happened. Well, normally, Lauren Bobert just shows up in my Twitter feed randomly. So the audio <laughs> stream, that's a new one. That's it for this week's episode. We'll be back in your feeds next week. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Benta Berkland with my colleague, Andrew Kenny. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Andy K-N-N-Y. I'm at Benta Berkland. This is Purplish from CPR News. <laughs>